Listener Production. Hi, this is Paul McIntyre. Welcome to the MI3 Audio Edition. I've been a business journalist for 25 years covering the marketing, media, agency and tech sectors. In this series, we talk to industry leaders about the global and local developments that you need to be across this week. Well, one of the co-founders of what is now known as Essential Songs, The Monkeys, the creative agency that landed one of the single biggest deals in Australian advertising at a reported $63 million has hung up his boots, at least for now. Essential Songs Group Chief Creative Officer Scott Noel is on the mics today and hopefully now retired and freed from work, will be supercharged with his mouth and relaxed enough to traverse a bunch of themes from a promising but failed attempt to enter the consumer goods business, reviving one of the original super premium ice cream brands, Homer Hudson, to the near reverse takeover by the monkeys of Saatchi and Saatchi in Australia. And what's changed about the agency he started with his partners in 2006. Now it's under the ownership of a giant global business technology and strategy consulting firm that is Accenture. Some might recall the monkeys was once called the three drunk monkeys before I think a potential client, drinks giant Diageo, asked them to change their name. Scott, I'm sure will correct me on that one if it's wayward. But welcome, Scott. You're retired and heading for an over-50s village, perhaps, or perhaps not. Hopefully, we're about to find out. But first up, have you actually left the building, Scott? Uh, Not quite yet, Paul. Uh, That's quite an introduction, and I'm slightly daunted by some of those questions you've got coming up. But yeah, I'm I'm about uh, seven days from um, walking out of the office, and I have a whole lot of stuff I have to get out of there. So thanks for the three seconds we've got here for this one then, Scott. But um, I did say you're heading to an over-50s. Are you 50 yet? I, I just turned 50. Hey. And uh, actually, Mark, t- Mark turned 50 a, a month after I did. So he's a month younger than I am. So we've, we've both hit our 50s. That sort of explains why I'm getting served so many over 55 village ads at the moment, I think. There's quite a few around the country, so you've got a bit to choose from. Um, let me know. We, we do want to know where you're going to land up on that one. But, hey, listen, it is quite a, a big moment. You know, I think the, the reaction from industry was widespread and mostly high praising. Well, that's what I heard anyway. I couldn't find anyone to bag you yet, so we'll have to go with the good stuff. Well, I've um, a lot of people, put it that way. Is <laughs> what it is, yeah. But it's working. Why now, Scott? What has happened? It's, what, it's six years past the, after the, the acquisition by Accenture Interactive Stroke Song? I thought you were going to say six years past the yeah, used by date. Used by date, yeah, and I think your wife probably said that. That's been generous. Yeah, so Paul, it feels like the perfect time to leave at the moment. You know, the business has never been in better shape. We've got the most amazing people running the, the place. I mean, Mark he couldn't be doing a better job running ANZ for Accenture Song and, and really setting up what the, the creative consulting model, you know, where that can take us all. and you know, in the future. We've got people like, you know, Tara, Ant and Damon running the offices in uh, in this region. You, you do not find better creative people than that. The place is stacked full of amazing talent. And uh, honestly, I, I don't think I've, I've had to find a moment where I'm comfortable to step away. You know, I do, I have felt for a little while that it's time for a bit of a reset after putting so much of my life into this. And um you know, in, the business in this position has provided a, a very comfortable time to do that. What is different about the monkeys pre-acquisition and today under the giant that is Accenture? That's a good question. What's different about working under a half million person business as opposed mm. to having, you know, 150, 200 people in a couple of buildings? It's um, weirdly enough, and I think 
Yeah, the soul of the place absolutely feels the same. You know, we're, we're all the same people in the in these rooms with our clients or trying to get through difficult briefs or trying to solve these business problems, you know, whatever the obstacles, we're still hopelessly optimistic, wildly ambitious, way over ambitious, which is what we've always been. You, you have to overcome a lot of obstacles to get the, the work out that we want to do and to get the effectiveness that we want to have for, for our clients and for ourselves. And it really bonds you as a as a team of people, whether it's in that room or in that building. So I, I actually feel like it's that same spirit is is carried through. The well, let me let me put it this way though, Scott. When the deal was done, there was a lot of people I remember it, and there's a lot of people, including myself, going, "What is going to happen to the monkeys? How do those two cultures uh, mesh and mash up? And is your culture going to be absolutely flattened by a beast that is far more?" conservative and tight on what it does versus the creative culture that you had. That was sort of the expectation at the time. Yeah. Um, and there was there's good rationale for why you did it, I, and we'll get into that a bit later. But, you know, the fear or the expectation was that you guys were just going, you know, the monkey's culture and creativity would be would absolutely be skunked by censure. Okay, so, yeah, the, the, the fear was that we were going to be roadkill. Mm, yeah. <laughs> and and now that you're 50, you're close. No, well, you know, literally. But um, I, I think almost the reverse has happened. You know, we're, we're able to go in there. And actually, I'll step back a bit. When we were speaking to people about a potential acquisition and we were speaking to a few potential partners, Accenture were the only ones who came in and they didn't talk money, they didn't talk anything. Their number one question was, how do we preserve your culture? So that made us, you know, much more comfortable about uh, going forward with the discussions the the answer is you've just got to keep doing what you've got to do and how we do it has expanded into Accenture culture itself so Accenture Interactive as it was then now Accenture Song it's like the idiots are, are running the asylum you've got David <laughs> obviously running global as a CEO and I, I don't think you could have anyone more ambitious or creatively minded in that job you've got Mark running it in ANZ another incredibly creative ambitious person and we're sort of doing things our way in a sense where there's that entrepreneurial mindset that we've always had as a business that is now i think been welcomed by accenture proper and definitely people within accenture song and it it feels like it's more of us our culture infiltrating them from where i sit that's good if it's true scott i mean you still though must be considered as unnecessary weirdos and parts of the empire, surely it's not. You, you're not. You're not sort of welcomed um, with open well, arms everywhere. Well, I, I, don't, I think initially there was a bit of who the hell are these guys? But over time, I mean, they, they probably still think we're weirdos. But I think we've become quite a necessary part of of Accenture proper. Accenture song is is performing incredibly well in the context of bigger Accenture and culturally, bigger bigger Accenture is starting to you know turn its eye towards Accenture song as as uh, a huge part of what they see as the future there's why so much, there's so much growth in what we do we've grown immensely this year just the the, the marrying up it, it hasn't been an easy path but getting these creative minds to marry up with the people who build the systems come up with the technology these amazing brains within Accenture and putting them together has just resulted in, in, in quite a um, – it's an engaging thing for the, for the market. 
So let's go to sort of the breadth of work and briefs you're getting and the types of people and capabilities you've got now. Surely that it, all of that is very different to what it was six years ago. Yeah, I mean, just back on the, you know, how these things work together. Of course, there have been a few moments where and a bunch of people who've been doing things their own way for 15 years suddenly have to answer for themselves. Two of your but best anecdotes on that, Scott. Probably um, one that comes to mind is a request that we lock our beer fridges until 5 p.m. Oh, that wouldn't have gone down well. No, it went down very badly, as you can imagine, and I think there were various threats made until... (laughs) (laughs) Uh, How did you manage that internal communications and stakeholder management issue? Oh, look, you you just got to look at the bigger picture and realise that these little things, you've got to resolve them. If you want to keep culture or preserve culture, as they've stated and they have, then... Mm. Did they get locked for a moment? You don't lock the beer fridges. Right. I mean, if we were 17, maybe. Yeah, yes. But you're 50, very big difference. So did they get locked at all? Oh, they were locked for, uh, I think, about, I don't know, six and a half hours one day. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> if you're a, a business of 500,000 people, you've got to have systems to keep everyone in line. We're a very different industry where creative people don't, work in that sort of way you know where you can every seven minutes like a lawyer or whatever you're not saying oh this is what i did yeah just some of that basic reporting stuff yeah so essentially that then did it get some adjustments so that expectation for process alignment sort of you managed to get some flex on that did you yeah and i think everyone we've met within accenture who's been there a long time are geniuses in how they work around that system and you know, they, they've <laughs> been successful at working the system to their advantage. So we've had to learn a bit of that too. Scott, I think we were talking earlier, you talk about the scope of briefs you're getting and the truly sort of breadth and depth of, of Accenture's organisation. It's doing some pretty interesting high-end stuff and the, the access to some of that some of that, um, that work and the, the sort of the briefs and agendas that are happening more broadly in the organisation, you would, would have never got as an independent hot creative shop that has been stimulating uh, for you, I think you say. Massively. And one of, well, while we were in discussions around the uh, doing the deal, we went into the Accenture Interactive offices and, and it was pointed, it was a room there and they were running the Samsung global e-commerce platform out of that room in Sydney. They were looking at whole new uh, supply chain things for Woolworths. They were reimagining the tax, how you, how you put your tax in. So, you know, or these massive projects that took a long time and it, it just felt like oh right that's the moment we went okay so if you had that and the and our kind of narrative and brand strategy this is going to work so at, mm-hmm. at its most simplistic level you've got the brand strategy brand design and all the way down and comms all the way down to ux and and all that and we realized that it doesn't matter how, I mean, everybody knows, it doesn't matter how good your communications and advertising are if the product's no good or the UX isn't any good, the customer's not going to be happy. So it's about uniting that brand promise and and what the brand actually gives you. But do creatives traditionally give a crap to cite a toilet roll brand on that stuff genuinely? Or like how deep do creatives go in wanting to actually, you know, move the needle on a piece of UX comms at, you know, stage three of a click-through from a customer? Well, it's it's about getting a breadth of opportunity as opposed to, hey, here's another Telstra brief to do, whatever it is. On one hand, you're doing this creative stuff where you're working on an opera house 
brand thing, 50-year thing. And on the other hand, you might be writing a narrative for, I mean, what what is and doing a huge project on the future of insurance, for example. Right. And, and these are, and creatives are, I mean, everybody thinks that creatives are just sort of these flippant people just want to do the, these fun things along the way. But it, I find that the best creatives are really they're interested in business and they're interested in how the world's going to change. The creative people are, are naturally very curious people. How is the, you know, what's the future going to look like? How are we going to be able to apply our thinking to, you know, I mean, to put, put even boring examples like the tax stuff your, your cha- or, or a transport system and being able to do that stuff alongside the, the opera houses or the advertising campaigns. It just gives you more breadth, and even something like the Tuvalu thing that came through Accenture. Tuvalu is is uh, one of, is the country that's probably going to go underwater first due to climate change, and they 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 were doing some work. Well, Accenture were doing some work with the Tuvalu and government, and Simon Kofo, the environment minister, and they sort of came to us and said, "Hey, look, we're doing this work with Tuvalu. Can we? Is there anything?" We can do for Simon Cafe's speech at COP27, and obviously, that, like that's where that idea of if it's going to be a country that is going to go underwater, where else can it exist? And currently, in the Nationhood Charter, if you don't have land, you can't have a country. Right. So, how are we going to change this? And part of this was putting a, like a there was a like a metaverse solution. So we put their country in the metaverse. And the other part of that is convincing or trying to trying to get legal change around what 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 does it mean to be a nation mm. so that that's changing already if you're if you're a country that's going to go underwater due to climate change you don't deserve to lose your culture or your nationhood status you don't you know you can't march at the olympics that, that's not right so that's what we're trying to change with that and subsequently other countries have been in contact so we can do something similar and so the big meaty end of the Accenture brief was to look at global law uh, in what enshrines a nation, but then you were brought in to try and move or raise awareness for, for it and shift perceptions, I assume. Uh, no, it was actually sort of, I'm, I'm not entirely sure what Accenture were doing with their government, but that came through that it was just how we're going to do his speech at COP27. Is there right. a way that we can get global publicity? And we went, okay. The issue here is that you'll lose your status as a nation and we will also preserve your nation by putting it in another place and let's argue for that legally. So it actually came out of our idea. So you had him standing in water at one stage, right? That was the previous year and I think that's what gave them the appetite to look at doing something again. I think he he did a speech the previous year, you know, knee deep in, in water and this took it, I mean, this was a whole new level, I think. What's really interesting is, um, you know, if we go right back to the top of our conversation about can a culture, uh, you know, core culture around creativity work with a big business transformation change management consulting firm, you know, deeply embedded in technology. When you talked about, you know, you coming in along with the hardline rational strategists and business consulting around the future of insurance, how does that mesh? So what, what are you brought in? How do you get together with those other advisors in, inside Accenture that are really looking at the hard stuff, where do you come together and, and how does it connect? The, the ideal situation is where you, you've got a brand strategy that fits into what any part of Accenture is trying to sell that brand. Does that make sense? So, 
and you'll you'll have people in a room. For example, if you're working on a brand campaign for a, a company, you, you'll you will get an industry expert, someone from Accenture who is across that entire segment of the, of the industry, uh, knows stuff that you were, I, I mean, sitting in an advertising agency, you are completely unaware of, and you'll, you'll be able to show them a brand strategy and, and they'll be able to say, oh, okay, great, this is what we are looking at selling that entire industry segment in terms of technology, in terms of the learnings that the, the data they've got on industry segments is absolutely unparalleled. So you can you get all that knowledge and you get someone who's suddenly engaged in how other people might see it right. as opposed to just their job. But there aren't many places you can be where you've got, you know, one of sort of four or five industry experts at that level in your room. Right, feeding. And yeah, you, the amount of information that, that that company has got is unbelievable. And for a creative person, it's like stumbling across Aladdin's cave. Right. You've suddenly got all these ideas and bits of technology never knew existed because they don't yet, but they're about to. Yeah, yeah. Right. You start talking about brands in just entirely different ways. But that sounds like you're quite um, open to your, your colleagues. Are they as open to you? So, of course, in the beginning, there was a bit of bum sniffing and the way p- people op- operate in corporate in a corporate sense is often, you know, sort of a little bit closed wall while we are very open. We want to suck ideas from everybody. We want to all um, get the most amount of people in the room we can get and just do the best job possible. So I think it took a little while for the people at Accenture to go, oh, they're not trying to steal our stuff. They're trying to make it better. Right. So there was a little bit of that. And but on, on the flip side, there's the few few people went. Oh, these guys could really help us, and that I can happily tell you is absolutely the case today. So in what seventy eighty percent of the time, can't be a hundred percent, Scott. Don't don't I'm, be too I'm creative not, with I'm your numbers. A, I'm, I'm not giving a figure, <laughs> the, but I can tell you that the the people that we are working with, the sort of work that we're putting out there talking about within Accenture, there's the, everybody's leaning in. Okay. And so the types of people and capabilities inside the monkeys now, has it broadened or is it essentially you're bringing in that breadth of talent from other parts of the organisation? Or have you got new types of creatives, new mindsets that perhaps was not there six years ago? The answer to that is yes. <laughs> so lots of expertise coming in from Accenture. And uh, just the, the way we, we're looking at the world, you are looking for creatives who have got that interest in, you know, broader business solutions. Of, of course, we we're, we're always want great idea generators and people who are interested in craft because we're still in the, we still got to steal people's attention and, and entertain them and engage them in a relevant way. So you, the, the classic, you know, the, the craft around you know, putting communications together never dies. But there's also, like I said, you, you know, you could be working on a, Telstra footy campaign and then you've also got this huge piece that's bubbling away in the background that might involve a whole different group of people from Accenture mm. and those those are, feel more long term. What would be your most frustrating moment? Again it's hard for me to answer as a as someone who's we grew a business by making decisions fast getting things right fast getting things wrong fast recovering from the wrong things fast and now we're in a culture that probably isn't as, uh, you know, you've just got to ask a lot of people if you can do something or not. Making decisions fast, getting things right fast and getting things wrong fast. 
fits perfectly with um, one of the more intriguing ventures um, pre-Ascenture that, that the partners um, sort of undertook, which is um, you took a stake in, in Homer Hudson ice cream with finger-licking intent to revive the brand as a lead player, uh, I think, in super premium ice cream. I remember writing this up, uh, gee, I don't even know how long ago. Was it 10 years ago, eight years ago, something like that? Um, longer probably. And basically using what you thought was your secret source, um, creative thinking and communications. But that whole uh, venture was quietly parked um, after a huge amount of development. And it was a big lesson for the partners. And when you talk about learning and making mistakes fast, I think this is a really good example of it. What happened? What was missing, Scott, between the grand plan and the reality of re- reviving a brand that had sort of so much potential? Probably a few hundred million dollars. <laughs> just <laughs> no that, I, I would never class that as, as a mistake Paul I, that was one of the our best learning experiences I think we had as a business because it wasn't our core business and look it was I, I think really the, what we're good at the the marketing advertising the communications and how and the brand strategy that that was all present but as anybody who's had their own products in the past will tell you it's it's an all-consuming thing, and I mean, what we learned over time that what there was, you know, ice cream production. We learned how to test ice cream. We did a lot of ice cream testing. How was your weight at that time? Uh, look, let's just—I'd fluctuated. But, it's, um, it's fair point. Yeah, no, that was it. Was um, it was was a lot of ice cream testing. We had a really good product. We managed to get it into a lot of stores. I think it was something like eight hundred or worse at that stage. And sort of re- revived the brand, lent into the Americanness of it, even though it was born in Australia. But it um, mm. very American. And it was owned by Unilever, right? It was offloaded by Unilever in, in its, Off, in its sort of whole by brand. Unilever to, to our then partner, uh, who, who'd come and said, "Look, do you can you guys help get this brand off the ground again?" And we sort of said, "Well, only we're, we're an owner, as the the greedy entrepreneurs we are." Mm. And he said, "Yes." So we we split that and. Well, it was, a, it was a fascinating journey, and but just the frozen goods distribution thing. <laughs> yeah, that thing is yes. real. Yeah, it, it, it's very real, but it's it's the logistics of it, and uh, I mean that, that is a it's a company in its own right. We had a growing advertising and um, entertainment and all kinds of thing, other business, a communications business, and we also had this ice cream business that was getting bigger and demanding more time. And I think really what we needed was partners who could run that side of it and do the frozen goods logistics and all, all of those sort of things that 100% need to be running smoothly before you even think about marketing and advertising. You know, there's some really interesting packaging, design. I think you might have even said that you probably overcooked the design, might have got a bit complicated. There's a sort of a lesson there. Uh, look, I, I don't know. It, it's Well, there's lots of lessons from it. The the designs were fantastic. Serge Seidelitz, the illustrator, did the illustrations. The tone of voice was, I think, pretty amazing. It was all about indulgence. If you're gonna, if you're gonna have ice cream, you may as well go all the way. Go all the way. That's right. I remember you were priced priced right up there, weren't you? Yeah. Well, you got to. You can, as my dad always said, you you, you can always uh, come down. You can never go up. Going back to Home Hudson, and we'll move on. But the thing there was that it did actually give you an appreciation, which is often not the case. It gave you an appreciation, a creative and a communications business about the whole business, right? So you sort of saw, okay, we can do this comms thing and we can do the packaging, we get the product right, but there's this other other thing. Did it did it sort of give you a little bit more empathy when you're talking to clients about trying to sell in great ideas? Oh, absolutely. It was a, it was a school in empathy when you – and for – I think we, as a 
as a business owner, we always it always felt I think to clients that we we actually really did care about their their business because we did because if we didn't we didn't we didn't have a business and just doing something of our own too gave us the uh, the education that especially in FMCG that I, I guess you just don't get in advertising so we were able to walk into a room and say okay we know what you're going through yeah. First up, I've got to ask you, um, the Monkees is obviously considered one, if not the top flight creative firm in Australia. But one of the probably, this is, this is what I found fascinating, one of probably the most creatively minded CMOs in the country at the moment, Telstra's Brent Smart, dropped the Monkees for another sort of international network, TBWA, and a boutique creative shop, Bear Meets Eagle on Fire, which ironically is sort of one of your ex-creative leaders, um, Mika Walker. What's your take on that? What happened? If you're, you're like, this should have been marriage forever. We worked on Telstra for a long time and very proud of the work we did under a number of CMOs. I think it was six all up. The brand has become one of Australia's most valuable. I think it's number two, $13 billion or something like that. You know, very, very proud of being a part of that. And it's obviously nice to go out in a high with the footy country stuff. That was great fun to work on. And uh, Ant and the guys in Melbourne have put together a uh, fantastic Christmas campaign so looking forward to seeing that out but um yeah look i I don't know what what you know brent just made that decision to go a different direction i mean i don't know why we've got a you know a team globally and regionally that i I find very hard to believe that anybody would not want you know you've got these people like david droger neil Heyman, you know nick law who've got this they're australians with affinity for this brand working at a global level you've got tara and Damon here, it's a, it's not a bad combination. Mm. So, and your last work was pretty good, by the way. I mean, I thought that that AFL footy, country footy thing was for me, you know, was a really good piece of great piece of work. Even I smiled and and stayed for the whole film. Yeah, that, that was a, a absolute blast to make, and I think Mark Malloy did a fantastic job directing that, and that was a joy to make with the Telstra team. So, yeah, good one to. So basically what you're saying is you're not going to tell me what you really think. So we'll move on then, Scott Noel. (laughs) Let's go to some flashback moments, Scott, before uh, one forward-looking moment, and then I will let you go back to your retirement. You came awfully close to a reverse takeover of Saatchi in Saatchi, Australia, but you pulled out. Uh, And you flirted for some time with with a possible deal with Gooby Silverstein in San Francisco, which, you know, as we all know, well, some of us know is right up there as one of the world's renowned creative uh, agencies. You've all cut your teeth in traditional creative agencies, but you what happened with those deals? Because at the same time, that was in the lead up to, I think, uh, it was before the Accenture uh, crew came on board, which ironically, one of the deal makers there is now the CEO of Densu uh, in Australia, which I find, yeah, you know, there's yeah. so, so, so twists and turns everywhere with you blokes. He's a good um, guy. But talk us through the Saatchi thing. I think it's got to be on the record at some point for, for history. Yeah, I'm not sure if, if this is on or off the record or, or whatever, but uh, I remember getting back. For, I, I was either on a shoot or, a, uh, I don't know, can't remember where I was, but I came back to the office and Granny and, and Justin were there and they were giggling like schoolboys and they said, you'd never, you'd never believe who called us. I don't know what's going on. They explained that Saatchi had called and said they wanted to buy us as a reverse takeover and we would go in and run Saatchi. And I think, uh, you know, looking back at it now, we, they were in a bit of a hole. They saw that we were on the ascendancy and wanted to get us back in there and sort of right the ship at Saatchi's. Do you remember um, when that was? What year? Well, five years after you started, so yeah, maybe, 10, 11? Yeah, something like that. Mm. But, I mean, the, the answer to that is we, we just weren't ready. We weren't financially structured to do any kind of deal. And, honestly, we didn't 
really want to go back to a life that we just left. Mm. We wanted to forge a new path and, and stuck to that. Could be seen with things sounded like something that could have worked for you though. You were, you were, you know, very aligned. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, and still are. We, we love, we love the goopy guys and always enjoy catching up with them. But, uh, yeah, we met Jeff and, and got to know them. And there was a bit of a plan of, of some kind of Pan Pacific mini network. Could be. Let's another. call it a micro network. It sounds more sophisticated. Yeah, my, micro network. Sorry. Yeah. I mean, yeah, so there's there's a lot of love between between us and, but again, they're, they're owned by Omnicom. They're not independent. We were independent at the time, still growing. Again, probably not fully formed as a, um, and, and structured as a as a business ready to sell. So mm. we we were, that that was a valuable lesson in, in seeing what, you know, the people like, uh, you know, companies like Omnicom are looking for. Right. They're, they're looking at those sort of companies. You did hint there about, okay, probably not quite ready in terms of your business. I think you have talked about the fact that what those both those conversations sort of uh, triggered the, the monkey's partners into is to actually take the business side of it uh, a little bit more seriously and get it tighter and, and, and ready for, you know, something next. What was that? Is it literally just around, was it process systems? Was it financials? Was it a focus on profit? Was it taking cost out? Was it being meaner and leaner and harder and less creative? Uh, a bit of all of the above minus the less creative bit. It's just right, being yeah. more disciplined around the about around what we're doing because we were pretty free and easy with what we wanted to spend time on. So did the drinks fridge close at midnight instead of sort of 4 a.m. or something? Is that what the well, difference was? It closed at midnight and opened at 12.01. Right. So, so there's a minute. Yeah. Yeah. yeah was, but um, no, I mean, we, we got to a, a stage, I think, where we, we'd been running so hard for so long. We're about 10 years in. This was round-the-clock stuff from the beginning. Mm-hmm. the ups and downs and the, the stresses of it all and all had minor health scares i think you know i've got a had a cancer taken out of the top of my head greenie had one taken out of his eye and justin had another health scare and this was all in a very short space of time we sort of looked at each other and went we can't keep doing working like this because you were like when you say working like this it was hectic right and long hard you guys were exhausted i imagine yes but you, there's that energy that you you get from running your own thing and it is. You do feel like it's life or death. I remember actually Ben Priest coming down. Tim Tim Bullock, director Tim Bullock, was uh, working with him on a Fosters campaign, and he came down and we went to lunch. And he he said, "You guys have got the look of the people who've been to the front line and back." And that, and he said, "I recognise that." You might want to tell the audience who Ben Priest is, by the way. Oh, Ben, ben Priest was the uh, chief creative officer of Adam and Eve in London. Right. Right. Yeah. And they'd done a very successful deal with DDB and. We actually thought, you know, at that time, let's not, uh, you know, have other people control this process. Let's control this process for ourselves. And a huge part of that is that the, the people who've come and worked at the Monkeys over the years, I mean, the, the sort of commitment they put in, the amazing talents you've got walking through the doors, just that group of people you're walking through the doors in every day, it's an absolute privilege. And it's probably something you don't sort of take into account when you start a business, but you get to choose your friends and being able to walk into the building and have these people coming up with such amazing things and running business the, the way they do. And, you know, you, you, you want to make sure that they've got a, a big future. Well, at the time we were thinking, and we spoke to holding companies, we ended up using the same uh, consultant that Adam and Eve used who fortuitously was moving to Sydney. Right. Was very good. That sort of whipped you into shape a little bit, a bit more, Discipline, we, we, as you say. 
Well, we were just, I think we were in very good shape as a business by then, uh, doing best work we'd ever done, working better as a, as a, as a business, and, and I think just ready for the next chapter. And having tried to change what the, the model was in the industry, it felt like we had to find something that was different. So we're people, speaking to people like you know, Vice Magazine, who at that time hadn't launched their creative offering, they were very interested but not quite ready out of New York, I imagine, out of the US. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, mm. and uh, and we we did actually speak to Accenture, PwC. They weren't really. They were sort of interested, but not really in the at that time ready to do something like that. And then uh, I think Accenture bought Kamarama in London, and we got a phone call very soon after that. Can we can we have a conversation? And as I alluded to earlier, the, their first question was, "How do we preserve the culture?" Mm. And that was a very, very different conversation. When you talked about what it takes to build something like the monkeys, from the outside, lots of people have a romantic notion of these guys are creative and, gee, things, shit just happens, things flow. But actually underneath, it's, it's, it is like a swan, right? It's graceful on the top or looks good on the top and it's pretty hectic underneath in the water. And so the perception is that all this stuff can sort of flow. And you talked about the people at the time giving a lot to make it happen, your, your people beyond the partners. Do you feel like there's a shift now with the sorts of expectations of a new generation coming through? Are they up for the same sort of give and grind that you've seen, that you probably guys have, have given and that you've seen with your people, or is it is it changing? Well, I think you've, you, you see workplaces changing everywhere, don't you? Mm. And there's, I mean, since COVID, of course, there, there's bit more of a realization around work life balance I, I look back and i can't believe how we worked previously but so a lot of it's healthy there are there's probably a bit of a swing back too far the other way from certain individuals but that you'll you'll find anywhere but you, you the, the people who are committed will always will always but could you have built what you've built doing it another way without that blood that you had to give if you're the one starting it i've not sure how i mean you could probably do it smarter we were fairly naive which served us extremely well but i think you, you could start something a lot smarter right what, what does that look like what does starting smarter mean i'll get it, getting an accountant <laughs> okay yeah <laughs> fair point <laughs> yeah okay uh i only half jest there, there's the working environment it's, it's the old added adage i want to say ad age but that's only because I've read it too that's much. That's a trade yeah, title, old, yeah. The old adage that you know, the more you put in, the more you get out. It's it's true. Mm. So, if but you've got to try and balance your life. Yeah. Okay. So listen, your former co-founder Justin Drape, who I think left, you know, what a couple of years ago, and he set up a what you know was called he's called a, a quote decentralized creative firm, uh, exceptional alien studio, which is close enough to Three Drunk Monkeys, if you ask me. It's sort of quite aligned in, in the catchiness of it, at least. But it doesn't do, Justin doesn't want to do interruptive advertising, right? He, he told MI3, one of my colleagues, um, a few months back, uh, and I quote, it was necessary to extract himself from the industry to recalibrate on what's possible when it comes to creativity and fresh ways to look at things. Like it or not, you fall into behavioral patterns of an agency structure. And he also said, we don't really believe in the method of disruption uh, just dumping ads on audiences for the purposes of a transaction. Uh, is that likely, Scott Noel, to become your position next uh, post when you come out of your retirement village and go, okay, I need to do something? 
Wow. So I'm going into a retirement village and then coming back out. Yeah, because you're going to work out that actually, you know, that's not for you yet because you're only 52. (laughs) That probably will happen. Yeah, look, that's interesting. I have actually been talking to Justin a lot about how he felt when he left and and, uh, that kind of thing. And I think it's true. You do have to take yourself out to be able to truly see objectively. I still think patterns of behavior in this industry are largely reinforced by remuneration. And that's something we're trying to change. And again, back to the people, if you, look, if you have a look at the landscape and just think, all right, how do, we, how do we best put our guys in a position where they're going to be part of the future of what this industry is? That was our, our goal and I feel like we're well and truly on that path. But in terms of, oh, look, I'm, I'm still a big believer in um, just being relevant, being relevant and entertaining. I, I know that and because people have got so many options these days, they, they can be anywhere. So in terms of interruption, sometimes you are going to have to interrupt, but if you interrupt them with something that that's relevant to them and it's interesting, they're going to be engaged. And I mean, it goes back to that 1950, oh, what is it? What is that? Howard Gossage, 1950s. People read what they're interested in. Sometimes that's an ad. Right. So that, that was a, obviously Howard Gossage quote, but it's never been more relevant in such a splintered media environment. One of the things that I find sort of interesting in the anti-advertising or, or what your ex-partner Justin talks about, which, by the way, I entirely get and understand as a, as a consumer um, sometimes, that, you know, the, the load, the ad loads, the, the boringness of them, sometimes you just got to roll your eyes. However, consumer psychology and the science that, if you can call it science, but the some of the, the research that definitely goes into advertising would definitely say that advertising works at a level to nudge and reminders and all that exposure you get does actually get into into memory encoding. So there's stuff there that happens, even though it may be the, the, the communication may not be, uh, you may not like it, you may not enjoy it, it lands. And so this whole thing of not doing interruptive advertising um, because people don't like it doesn't mean that it doesn't work, which is probably what you just said about four minutes ago. And I just repeated it, but I'm just interested in that in that notion. There's a sort of an anti-ad. Creatives particularly have want to do really more interesting stuff, but there is efficacy in some of this really mundane and sometimes annoying advertising stuff that you have produced for a long time that you no longer will because you're retired. Look, there's always a case if if you say something often enough, even if it's really annoying, you're going to get remembered. But I, I, I think that's going to, AI is probably going to take over all that. And so right. we, we, we're going to exist to do stuff that sticks longer and deeper over, over time. So it really is about being relevant as a, as a business, as a product with communication. I mean, if you've got a, I mean, this isn't an advertising centric conversation anymore. It's got to be about your what the business delivers, what that product delivers. If your UX is no good, if that user experience is no good, then there's no point with great comms. Right so, there is proof that you've had the Accenture chip because that's exactly <laughs> sort of the the fully integrated chip of um, Scott Noel, um, which, by the way, is not wrong. I mean, I completely. Like, this has been the big problem with advertising right, for a long time: is that you say you you, you make a, you pitch something, but you can't deliver it as a business. So this is all about delivering right. all the way through. And, and the industry loses relevancy if they can't talk in those big business solutions. Mm. Mm. So that's what we're doing. And I know Dave Droger is saying we need more creative people at the boardroom table. I think he's right. Mm. You know, there's this next period where you will have a lot of generative AI taking over sort of the lower middle ground. You're going to need to be to present some pretty compelling 
you know, creative business solutions. Well, I guess, um, so why are you retiring then? Because if we need more creative people at board level, why wouldn't you do that? Which is a segue really into what's next for you. And, and will Mark Green be lonely now? Both of his, both of his <laughs> partners are gone. Uh, Mark's got plenty of friends. He's, uh, and he's a very busy man. He's, do, he's just doing an exceptional job at the moment. Take my hat off to him. But um, yeah, look, I, I need you. a bit of a break. I, I, I need a bit of a break. I need to reset. I, I'm still obviously deeply interested in this, uh, this world. I'm just trying to make myself not think about things for a while. Do you think it's going to work? Uh, there's a high probability it won't work. Yeah, that's what, that's what I, I'm putting some money on that. In fact, I'd put more know, money on that than the Melbourne Cup, by the way. But, I mean, you know, noble attempt, good on you for trying. But, you know, we'll see in eight weeks' time you'll be up to something for sure. I mean, I know you've got your wife to deal with, right? That's one of the big things. Well, she's got me to deal and with. And kids. Too, I think. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah um, right. Oh, look, it, uh, it'll be good. I, but, you know, Warren Brown said to me the other day, just make sure you spend enough time off so that you realise you don't have to do this again. Right. Thought that was good, quite wise. good call. Good call. Yeah, yeah. It was absolutely worthwhile uh, having the update, at least because I now know that you are fifty, and I say your name Noel, if nothing else. Um, <laughs> so, Scott Noel, uh, all the very best for what happens next. I'm sure, hopefully, we will cross paths again, and we'll hear some interesting things you're up to. But until then, take the break and enjoy the retirement village. Thanks, Paul. This MI3 audio edition was presented by Paul McIntyre. That's more. Producer Nick Slater. Music by Matt Dwyer. For more episodes, go to listener.com or download the Listener app and search MI3 Audio Edition to listen for free. Listener.